Hello and welcome, um, everybody. Welcome to our listeners on radio. Um, today, uh, we are live uh, on this Science Hour at Jelsa in London. Um, we're coming live from the studio here, uh, from the site of Hadikatul Mahdi. And today, uh, we will talk about um, a very important topic which is very um, very much alive here uh, at this event which is happening and this is all about the gatherings and the psychology of gatherings uh, today um, I'm joined by um, respected uh, dr. Shakil Ahmad um, he's a consultant psychiatrist based in London so he will be sharing his thoughts and experiences around the psychology, human psychology of gathering. Why do we get together? Why, why there is a need of such gatherings? So, uh, if I can ask uh, Dr. Shakil Saab to uh, start the conversation. Thank you, Yaya, uh, for the introduction. Uh, yes, uh, we are gathered here today for the Jalsa Salana, which is the annual convention of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Association. The Jalsa has been. Uh, taking place right from the very early years of the Ahmadiyya movement, uh, about 130 years ago. Yes, we had a little bit of a gap due to the uh, pandemic and the lockdown years, but by the grace of God, the Jalsa has uh, restarted this year uh, with an average gathering of about 30,000 UK members. Typically, it's an international event, um, as we know, and members of the Ahmadiyya movement and guests attend the Jalsa from all over the world. But uh, this year it's been restricted to UK members only, and that is again as a prevention um, against the infection control. Um, like uh, my co-host uh, Yaya Mufti has said, uh, we're going to talk about initially about the gatherings in general, taking a scientific approach in terms of human behavior in gatherings, why people gather and what do they achieve from it. So a bit of psychology. Then we move on to uh, looking at some of the major world gatherings th that take place around the world and the different festivals that um, facilitate these gatherings. And ultimately coming to the philosophy and the purpose of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Convention, uh, we call it the Jalsa Salana, which literally translates to the annual convention um, and why it was founded by the founder of the movement, the promised Messiah, may peace be on him. So starting with the first section, the psychology of gatherings, the Holy Quran, chapter 30, verse 31 says, so set your face to religion with devotion and follow the nature according to which God fashioned mankind. There is no altering the creation of Allah. That is the right religion, but most are not aware. This is Holy Quran setting out the basic parameter of what religion is based on. Nature, or to be more precise, laws of nature. Nature as defined by the original source of all laws, the creator of nature. In other words, Quran is describing that any religious teachings to be viable, they have to be in accordance with the laws of nature. Human psyche, 
being one aspect of the natural processes that determines our integration with natural principles, it follows that the Holy Quran is teaching us that the religious principles to be useful will have to be in accordance with the human psyche too. Sigmund Freud, who lived from 1856 to 1939, was an Austrian neurologist. He developed interest in human psychology and studied the human personality and behavior in his patients. He studied not just the brain function of his patients, but also their mental functions. He developed an interest in different levels of functioning of the human mind. He postulated two main levels, a conscious level of the human mind, uh, where our thoughts and feelings, we would be aware of them, and the unconscious level where we would hold some thoughts and feelings that we ourselves would not be aware of. This uh, formed the basis of a psychoanalytic theory of human psychology. Freud developed this psychoanalytic theory in the late 19th century. And according to this theory, the unconscious mind was basically defined as a reservoir of feelings, thoughts, desires and memories that lie beyond the conscious awareness of the individual. To help conceptualize the unconscious mind, uh, we can compare it to uh, an iceberg. Everything above the water represents the conscious awareness, while everything that lies below the water surface represents the unconscious. And again, just like in an iceberg, the bigger part is under the water, the feelings and memories we may, we may hold in our unconscious could be a lot more than what we hold in the conscious mind. The unconscious mind is particularly likely to store those emotions that were difficult to endure at the time or were at some level painful experiences. Within this understanding, most of the contents of the unconscious are considered unacceptable to our conscious minds, such as feelings of anxiety or conflict. It is understood that the mind represses the uncomfortable feelings as a coping strategy, moving them from conscious level to the unconscious level. Now the significance of this is that Freud believed that the emotions stored in the unconscious mind continue to influence our behavior even though we may remain unaware of these influencing underlying influences. The Holy Quran on the unconscious in chapter 20 verse 7 first speaks about the physical world and some aspects of the physical world that are still beyond human knowledge and awareness. It says, to him belongs whatsoever is in the heavens and whatsoever is in the earth and who, whatsoever is between them and whatsoever is beneath the moist subsoil. So here the Holy Quran is alerting us to existence of physical matter that we may not be aware of. We at some stage did not know about the details of the gases present in the air or the presence of radiation all around us. We know now 
but only through our scientific exploration. There is still existence of matter that scientists know exists, but they do not know anything more about it. For example, the dark matter and the dark energy in space. So it's a process of gradually developing knowledge. But then the Holy Quran in the following verse, chapter 20, verse 8, speaks of the abstract creation, thoughts, feelings and ideas. And speaks and, and translates, uh, and whether you speak aloud or not, it makes no difference. For he knows the secret thought and also what is yet more hidden. So the Holy Quran Im implies that Allah is aware of our innermost feelings and thoughts, even ones that we may not be fully aware of ourselves. And this is a very clear reference to our subconscious mind. And at this stage, uh, I would also uh, refer to our practical, uh, the, the Muslim practice of regular daily obligatory prayers. And this practice of meditation and mindfulness is in fact also a practice of self-exploration, self-analysis of our habits and behavior. It requires a lot of effort and this is the uh, primary meaning of the expression jihad. This jihad or effort of self-exploration puts us in better commune with our subconscious understanding our psychological self and to recognize our weaknesses. It strengthens us at a psychological level, providing an opportunity to reform and at the same time to cope with stress better. Therefore, it leads us to increased courage to be truthful under all circumstances. After all, one common reason we shun truth is uh, when we find the truth more stressful. Quran also teaches us that in the remembrance of Allah is the increase of his blessings on us and we find peace. We know that in psychotherapy we are expected to make a confession to our therapist or to a priest in a church and it has its therapeutic benefits. But when sincerely done to our Creator as part of our daily prayers, this confession is free from any kind of social pressures because there's no other person involved. And therefore, it remains a secret between the individual and his Creator and has a lot more therapeutic value. And this way, God becomes our ultimate therapist. Yeah, yeah, you would want that's to... A, that's a really interesting point. I was, as, a, as you were talking about it, I was thinking um, a lot of the time, the physical actions that a human takes has an impact on his mind and thinking. So a lot of the time people say, do some exercise that makes you happier or go for a run, go for a walk or cycle, that, that kind of physical activity. It gives you, seems like gives you a uh, kind of a kick, a, a reset, a refresh to your thinking as well. And what you just said about connecting or doing prayers, uh, which Muslims do five times a day, 
Um, it also involves some physical actions as well at the same time. So you stand, you sit down, and then you prostrate. And it's very similar to in Christianity where you have to kneel down to pray as well in, in certain yeah, times. How is that connected? So your thoughts and your physical actions that you take to complement those thoughts, how, how does that work? And, and can you shed some light on, from a psychological, psychiatry perspective as well? Um, yes, or from a, a, a simple level of lay understanding. After all, it's the same human being. Our body and our mind are part of one individual. So let's say the, take the example of a physical pain that we suffer from. The suffering is not in fact just in that part of the body that's affected. It travels through our sensory nerves into the central nervous system, which is our brain. The brain perceives the pain and therefore the sense of suffering occurs in the mind. And then it is projected back to the same part of the body. And we think the pain's occurring in, let's say my finger because I had a paper cut. But in fact, it's the brain that experiences it and puts some meaning to it. So what I mean to say is that the body and the mind work in sync with each other, are in very much in harmony with each other. And I think you've touched on a very pertinent point. I remember the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement, the promised Messiah, may peace and blessings be on him. He has guided us that without good physical health, it will be difficult for us to have good mental and spiritual health. So he has guided us to understand the philosophy of religion as something that develops the whole individual and not just one uh, abstract spiritual side of it. Because without the physical, we would not have a healthy spiritual side. So thank you for making that point. Um, we would now move on to an additional theory of the human psyche. It is an alternative theory which was proposed by an American psychiatrist, Aaron Beck, who lived from 1921 to 2021. So he passed away last year at the age of 100. And he uh, is the originator of cognitive therapy. He rejected the idea of a dynamic unconscious influencing our social behavior. He based his theory on patterns of thought that he explained would develop certain trends and thus affect our behavior. Psychological understanding of his theory is that our maladaptive or irrational thinking patterns lead to emotional disturbance. Or in simpler terms, the way we think influences the way we think influences the way we feel and behave. So the aim of cognitive therapy would be to identify irrational thought patterns and replace them with reason-based positive and factual information. Now, the Holy Quran on this subject of trying to understand matters in relation to their circumstances mentions in chapter 29 verse 44 and these are similitudes which we set forth for mankind, but only those understand them who have knowledge. And we have made it, uh, chapter 43, verse 4, we have made it a Quran in clear, eloquent language that you may understand. So here the emphasis is on 
making an observation about the reality around ourselves and the world around us and make an informed uh, decision about the information that we observe and then decide what could be a right or a wrong way of responding to it and make a judgment based on our understanding. In another verse, chapter 94, verse 6, the Holy Quran reassures us that after hardship there is ease and success if one continues to live a life of righteousness. So once again the emphasis being that our behavior, if based on righteous judgment, is likely to lead to therapeutic benefit to the individual as well as to the society. Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of God be on him, has said that we need to compare ourselves with those who are less fortunate than us and not the other way around. This way we will better appreciate the blessings we have from God and therefore more likely to feel content and thus reducing our mental stress. So all of this above Islamic teachings are, we can see, powerful tools to help us rid of our negative cognitions. In his travels and studies, Jung saw mythologies as the expression of the collective unconscious. When stories, images or symbols appeared in similar form but in different cultures, he called them archetypes. These represent a common human inheritance of patterns of thought and action or basic psychological instincts. It is quite certain that uh, man is born with a certain functioning, a certain way of functioning, a certain pattern of behavior. And uh, that is expressed in the form of archetypal images or archetypal forms. For instance, the way in which a man should behave is given by an archetype. Yes. And therefore, you see, the primitives tell that stories uh, a great deal of education goes through storytelling. He thought that scientific industrial man was suffered great psychic distress and frustration because the religious side of our nature was repressed. Jung was trying to speak to that, to bring it forward. According to the Jungian tradition, uh, our religions are produced something like works of folk art. Religion is the heart and center of culture, and it's through religion that we work out a common vocabulary of rituals and symbols, which together makes up a kind of house of meaning that we dwell in our particular vision of the universe, of human life, of human personal relations, and so on. In Africa, Jung sat with the Algoni men as they told their myths and stories. For instance, they call in a palaver of the young men and uh, to older men perform before the eyes of the younger all the things they should not do. <laughs> yeah. And then they say, now that is exactly the thing you shall not do. Another way is, they tell them of all the things they should not do. They tell them, and you like the decalogue, thou shalt not. Yes, yes. And, uh, and that is always um, uh, supported by uh, mythological tales. For instance, our ancestors have done so and so. 
uh, and so you shall do. Or such a, such a hero has done so and so, and that is your uh, model. We were just listening to uh, the voice of Carl Jung, another psychotherapist who explained to us the concept of collective unconscious. So this moves us nicely from the individual unconscious or subconscious to the collective unconscious. Carl Jung was a Swiss psychiatrist and he lived between 1875 and 1961. And he, uh, agreed with the view that unconscious played an important role in shaping the personality. However, he disagreed with Freud in terms of what may be the underlying unconscious passions that influence our behavior. Jung believed that in addition to an individual personal unconscious, there was what he referred to as the collective unconscious. The collective unconscious was said to contain inherited ancestral memories and instincts common to all of the humankind. And he called these common themes or trends as archetypes. This collective unconscious memory, he explained, can go back generations and literally connects us with the psychic life of our ancestors. So we've just heard Jung in uh, explaining this concept briefly. Uh, I will also now move on to the another clip in his own voice. In his research and travel in Africa, America and Britain, Jung absorbed mythological material and above all images to relate to his patients' dreams and the images of their unconscious. And everywhere he found evidence of the collective unconscious. Author Robert Johnson. He discovered it in the unconscious of his own patients and in his own extraordinary experiences of dreams and visions, and also in the mythology which fascinated him. The fact that mythology from every part of the world carries so many elements in common fascinated him. Well, there are certain myths that are timeless and universal, such as the hero myth, the uh, the uh, trickster cycle, uh, of, uh, which you find among the American Indians or among African natives or in Australia or anywhere. These are on a primitive tribal level. But they can be found in the dreams of modern people just as well. And they are found in the Far East as well as in the Christian West. Uh, we think we are able to be born today and to live in no myth without history. That's, that is a, a disease that's absolutely abnormal because man is not born every day. He's once born in, in a specific historical setting with specific historical qualities and therefore he's only complete when he has a relation. One of the interesting things about Carl Jung was that he brought in the role of our spiritual self which is what Yaya, you were referring to, is the importance of spiritual in relation to our physical life, uh, into the understanding of the human psyche. So did Jung believe in God? In Jung's view, the truth about God is complex 
because God is a mystery whose nature is so complex that it becomes beyond human comprehension. In trying to understand God, we need to create our own image of Him. Islam guides us that God is best understood through revelation of God to the chosen ones, particularly his prophets, may peace be on all of them. So let's hear to what Jung said about his belief in religion and God. Jung came to believe that religion was a significant force in our psychological health, and its decline may have serious ramifications for our mental well-being. As rates of depression and suicide rise rapidly in industrial societies, many modern psychologists have ascertained what Jung predicted nearly a century beforehand. Religion can have a positive impact on mental health, as it is known that religious people suffer lower rates of depression, suicide, and other psychological ailments. Therefore, it is crucial to understand the effect that religion has upon our minds, and what steps can be taken to counteract the negative effects associated with the decline of religion in the modern world. This, to Jung, suggested a link between religious ideas and the unconscious mind. Since this patient is by no means the only one I have observed, who exhibited the phenomenon of the voice in dreams and in other peculiar states of consciousness, I am forced to admit that the unconscious is capable at times of manifesting an intelligence and purposiveness superior to the actual conscious insight. There can be no doubt that this is a basic religious phenomenon, observed here in a person whose conscious mental attitude certainly seemed most unlikely to produce religious phenomena. The commonality of certain symbols between religious groups demonstrate that many such symbols are derived from the collective layer of the psyche, which is composed of archetypes, psychic structures which are shared between all people. It is thus the experience of these symbols which provides a sense of connectedness between all people and the feeling that religion connects us with something deeper. This sense of shared connectedness is something which humans, as a social species, fundamentally desire, which is why religions often emphasize the communal aspect. Religious symbols point to wisdom which is relevant for life and for dealing with pertinent issues pertaining to morality and the struggles we face during our journeys through life. So we've interestingly heard uh, how spirituality and human psyche is linked even in the uh, modern understanding of psychological sciences. So with that background, we would now move on to the second stage of our program and just look at some of the biggest gatherings that take place in the world. Um, what we're going to do, yeah, yeah, is going to look at five major gatherings that we've been able to, to um, find. The biggest gathering that takes place is the Kumbh Mela. Now this takes place in India and it's one of the largest festivals in the world. It attracts tens of millions of people on its busiest day. It's a Hindu religion based festival and it takes place every four years. And each of the festival lasts over several weeks. The site of the Mela is spread on different locations at the banks of four major rivers in India. The Ganges, the Shipra, the Godavari, and the Jamna. At each of these melas, 
people gather for worship and meditation. The second biggest gathering that takes place in the world is the Arbaeen pilgrimage. This happens in Iraq and this is the largest annual public gathering. Remember the Kumbh Mela takes place every four years but Arbaeen pilgrimage is an annual gathering. It takes place at a town in Iraq called Karbala. In, at the end of the 40-day mourning period following what is called as Ashura. This is a Shia Muslim ritual and it is in, celebrated in the memory of martyrdom of Hazrat Hussain, may Allah be pleased with him, who was the grandson of the founder of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be on him. The event of his martyrdom took place 61 years after the immigration of the Prophet from Mecca to Medina. There is some celebration of the Arbaeen Mela outside of Iraq too, in countries like Iran, Nigeria, United States, and even here in the United Kingdom. The Husseini Islamic Trust organizes the festival in UK, and this year it will be taking place uh, in Westminster in September. The third biggest gathering that takes place around the world is the Alami Ijtama. This is an annual three-day congregation of the Tablighi Jamaat, a movement in Islam that has a strong following among the South Asian population. Their Ijtamas take place in India, Bangladesh and Pakistan. And in 2018, this Ijtama gathered more than 12 million people in Aurangabad in India. The fourth biggest festival that takes place is the Hajj, the Islamic pilgrimage to Mecca in Saudi Arabia. The Hajj pilgrimage averaged from 2.5 to 3 million people until the pandemic restrictions kicked in. Hajj, as we would know, is one of the five main pillars of Islam and it is a mandatory religious duty for every Muslim that must be carried out at least once in their lifetime, provided a few conditions are met. For example, a person would have to be physically and financially capable of undertaking the journey they would need to be capable of supporting their family during their absence from home and that their safety is not at risk during the travels. And the last one, the fifth festival, is the Sinulog Festival. This is held in Cebu, in Philippines. The festival is a celebration of one of the country's famous historic relics which is the child saint of Cebu. This statue of the baby Jesus, Jesus Christ, may peace be on him, was handed to the Raja Humabom by the Portuguese explorer Ferdinand Magellan in 1521. And one to two million people gather at these gatherings every year. So it's 
interesting that we've uh, seen these five major gatherings of the world. That's, that's really interesting, um, uh, Doxa. This is, um, as you were reading uh, about and talking about these, one thing that, a couple of things that came out for me was all these top five gatherings are somehow related to a religion or religion, religious thinking. Um, and that's really interesting that how come we see these big events, big gatherings happening to bring people, but from a religious perspective. Um, and the other thing is, uh, you talked about um, these gatherings, most of them are international type of gatherings. People from all around the world come and congregate, whether they congregate in one place or they congregate locally, but at the same time. And it also um, brings the point that regardless of what religion you belong to, this, this need of gathering is very, very prominent in most, if not all religions. How, how, how does this come about? I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting point that every religion wants people to come together, talk to each other, network, and then do the same thing. How, how does that happen? I, I was also intrigued. I would agree with you when I looked at these big gatherings that, in fact, all of them are religious gatherings. And on one hand, it struck me that religion is... This is evidence that religion is the driving force for a huge proportion of the world population still, despite we seeing a rise of atheism or a shift away from religion in some parts of the world, including where we live, the Western countries. Uh, but coming back to your point, I think that religion, one of the primary purposes of any religion is to bring mankind together. And in fact, the Holy Quran teaches us that the concept of unity of God, there being one creator, is not completely understood unless we see all mankind as one, as brothers and sisters, and that welfare of every human being becomes the responsibility of every Muslim. So we are taught as Muslims that if somebody is suffering, irrespective of their religion or ethnicity or any race, we should try to help them as much as, it, as we can. And in fact, the Holy Quran goes to the stage that if we did, out of our resources, that would only be a baseline of good righteousness that Quran expects us to be when Quran wants us to build our spiritual status, they want us to sacrifice our comfort, our needs for the sake of others. The concept of itaz al-qurba, you know, that the example is given that like the mother sacrifices for her children, mm. because that's one of the most well understood examples of human sacrifice without any expectation of a gain. Mm -hmm. So that's what religion is about. And so therefore, I think it's easy to understand that the biggest gatherings around the world are, in fact, still religious gatherings. And, and also, I think just to bring into perspective, uh, uh, some of the non-religious gatherings that we see generally in, 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 in today's world, in the UK, for example, there is a uh, Glastonbury Festival, for example. There is events, big events, football events, or where people go in. 
And it's interesting that people from various cultures, religion, they all come together for one reason sometimes. So it's a football match or a music festival. It also brings that together. So I think religion also has this kind of element to bring people together. You have to have a gathering, first of all, face-to-face communication, bring people together of similar thoughts, similar mindsets, similar objectives. Um, and then that need is fulfilled in these gatherings. So how, how do you see um, the people coming to any gathering getting that fulfillment that they're asking for? How does that happen in your, in your uh, experience or your, your science that you, uh, is psychiatry? Um, you know, the sense of community, the sense of belonging, the sense of brotherhood, as it's commonly uh, referred to, and to work towards a common goal. All religions have in fact taught us that our spiritual well-being is significant. And if we meditate together, if we worship together, we have a stronger sense of our self-fulfillment. I think those are the psychological factors behind such gatherings. And I think you've made another good point, and I would now want to move on to the philosophy of this gathering in which we sit today, the Ahmadiyya Muslim Convention, and we call it as the Jalsa Salana. Thank you, uh, Dr. Shakir. So, very, um, uh, you know, timely. Um, where we're sitting today, uh, doing this this live show, is as a site um, um, called Hadikat Madi, which is uh, near Alton in London. Um, you very eloquently explained the history and psychology of the gathering. Today, this gathering, which is, as you said, called Jalsa Salana, was started by the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, peace be upon him. And he clearly mentioned the objectives and the purpose of this gathering in his own words. So I'm just going to read what he said, and uh, it clearly defines the objective. He says, the, the primary purpose of this convention is to enable every sincere individual to personally experience religious benefits. They may enhance their knowledge and, due to their blessed and enabled by Allah, the exalted, their perception of Allah may progress. Among its secondary benefits is that this congregational meeting together with will promote mutual introduction among all brothers and it will strengthen the fraternal ties within this community. He further states or says it is essential for all those who can afford to undertake the journey that they must come to attend this convention which embodies many blessed objectives. They should disregard minor inconveniences in the cause of Allah and his prophet peace be upon him. Allah yields rewards, reward to sincere persons at every step of their way and no labor and hardship undertaken in his way ever goes to waste. I re-emphasize that you must not rank this convention in the same league as other ordinary human assemblies. So these are the two um, extracts that I selected to read today where um, the founder of Ahmadiyyad, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, peace be upon him, mentions what is the key objective. Come together, listen to speeches, listen to, uh, which will bring you closer to God, but also it makes you 
meet your brothers in religion, uh, you meet other people, and that brings you together. It, it, it creates that lovely environment that we, people who are here today, experience. Uh, they meet and see people around the world coming here from different parts of the world, never seen them before. They go and greet them, meet them, and just start talking. Um, and then they get to know more people. And that creates that brotherhood um, through this gathering as well. Um, while we are on this topic, just very quickly, people who are here on site today, uh, um, there are some exhibitions also happening uh, on site. Uh, there is a uh, IT UK marquee, which is uh, showing how the fundamental of science are embedded in design by Allah the Almighty. And they will shed some lights on, on further presentations which are being held today at 6.45, 7.15 and 7.45. So people who are on site today here uh, in Hampshire attending this uh, event or gathering, uh, they're more than welcome to attend these meetings and presentations. Um, with that, um, I'm going to read through a couple of more things before we uh, move on to the end of this uh, live session today. The, um, the, the promised Messiah, Hazrat Mizar Ghulam Ahmed, peace be upon him, also mentions that why should we attend these kind of gatherings? So apart from the objective that I just read earlier, I found this uh, extract really, really useful and uh, summarizes the fact that promised Messiah, uh, peace be upon him, expressed that by meeting um, him when he was obviously he started this uh, gathering he invited people to come and meet him as well so he said by meeting him the purpose of bait which is um, taking um, bait from his community could be fulfilled and the purpose was to neutralize the love of worldliness um, and to allow the love for the exalted lord and the beloved prophet peace and blessing of allah be upon him to dominate the heart, to create such a condition of indifference to this life, so that the journey to the hereafter is not tested. Thank you, Yaya, for uh, uh, um, taking us to the words of the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and explaining to us the philosophy of this gathering in his own words. And we're coming to the end of this program, so I would just uh, mention that uh, um, that we are going to, uh, that the, the main distinction between the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam and the rest of the Muslims is that we've been guided by the promised Messiah to take a scientific, rational and progressive view of religion. This is how we are taught to practice it and our focus remains on bringing all mankind together, make these gatherings more constructive, more peaceful and for the benefit of the whole mankind rather than focusing more on our individual pleasures or and like you have read that we are guided that this is not a an average festival this is a meditative worship focused benefit of mankind focused gathering um, so that brings us to the end of this program uh, i've been asked to make just one announcement that after the uh, 12 midday news we are going to have a we're going to listen to live speech from this jalsa 
by the president of the UK Ahmadiyya Muslim Association, uh, Rafiq Hayat uh, Sahib, Mr. Rafiq Hayat, uh, and we would take you live for the proceedings of this Jalsa. So thank you to all the listeners. Peace be on all of you and with best wishes from Yaya and myself. Uh, Assalamu alaikum.